The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. No woman uh, in this hour just yet. Uh, this is Mark Romaldi, Leslie's executive producer. I will be uh, holding down the fort for Leslie, who is on TV currently or taping uh, television or coming back from television, usually one of those three things in this hour. Uh, so today and actually each Wednesday for about the next three months, just for an hour, three to four uh, Leslie will be doing some television, so I have the privilege, uh, as I've done uh, a bunch of times before, kind of randomly, uh, where I'll be able to join you folks for an hour uh, just once a week. So before I get into my topic for today, and before we uh, uh, get into that, I just want to let you know we're going to be joined by the great John Nichols, a pioneering political blogger from The Nation, uh, who's been on the show many times before, and we're going to be talking about how the 08 recession Happened, what led to it in the um, guise of why uh, Bernie or, or what Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton planned to do to prevent the next 08 recession from happening, uh, the next recession or whatever you want to call it, however we got there. Um, basically, their plan to prevent Wall Street from leading us into uh, another recession the way that they did in 2008. So that's going to be coming up in our next segment. But before we get to that topic, I thought I would kind of let you folks know why I um, believe what I believe, how I came to be sitting in front of this microphone uh, talking to you, um, and why that's important and it shapes my views of the news and what we're going to be discussing. Um, In the time I have with you, my goal is to bring topics to your attention that maybe, um, you know, the hard-hitting breaking news that's right this minute – a lot of the times I find that there's distractions. It's, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. But sometimes the really more important stories, the ones that affect us most, are third or fourth in the headlines. And I want to flesh them out. That's one of the beautiful things about radio that I've learned over the years is we have the time to actually do so. We don't have to explain everything to you in 30 seconds. Um, so that's going to be some kind of everything I talk about is going to be um, mostly with that in mind. So, um just kind of letting you know, like I said, where uh, where I'm coming from, um, what led me to be in the position uh, that I'm in now working for Leslie, which I've had the privilege of doing so. Actually, next month, which Leslie's going to feel old when I say this, um, I'll be working for her for a decade now, uh, which is pretty amazing. It's almost uh, a little under a third of my entire life. Um, so my background, I grew up in a household where I never heard politics talked about, so I was as apolitical as someone could get growing up. Um, I was 18 when I saw George W. Bush steal the 2000 election. Uh, Like many Americans, I was initially duped into believing that the Iraq War was a worthwhile cause. By the 2004 election, George W. Bush had helped me find my political identity as a liberal. I told everyone who would listen to me to vote for John Kerry. Um, Obviously, it didn't work out that way. Another stolen election. Um in different terms, 
In 2008, my wife and I traveled to Pennsylvania to go door-to-door campaigning for President Obama, the first major political campaign that I got involved in. Um, In 2010, I saw what would become the most influential Supreme Court decision of my lifetime, Citizens United, completely gut our already weakened campaign finance system in America. In 2012, my wife and I traveled to Ohio multiple times to go door-to-door campaigning again for President Obama. Uh, Today, as I sit here speaking with you in 2016, my number one issue by far is campaign finance reform. This is because in nearly every political news story I come across as part of my job, the story involved is greatly affected by the amount of money lobbyists have poured into the issue. Uh, I can't recall the last time I heard a Republican proposal that I thought was good for America. I find that stunning, um, and I really look for them. I, I look for common ground and I just don't think it's offered in today's Republican Party. Voices like Colin Powell, for instance, are marginalized and considered, they're called rhinos, Republican in name only, by um, what today's Republican Party has become, the very far right, the most radical uh, thinkers in the Republican Party now dominate the Republican Party. Um, On a side note, which I'll discuss with John Nichols, the numbers on income inequality are getting so staggering, they're starting to sound fake to me. Um, That's kind of my political background, I guess you could say my professional background, um, or how I became um, getting involved in this medium uh, of radio. Uh, In May of 2004, I graduated from Syracuse University's uh, School of Public Communications, Newhouse, with a degree in broadcast journalism. In February of 2016, Leslie hired me as her assistant producer. In 2008, I was promoted to her executive producer. And then later that year, the Leslie Marshall Show became nationally syndicated uh, for the second time in Leslie's career. Uh, My personal background, I'm an active volunteer in helping to find uh, a cure for cancer. Uh, In March, I'll be participating in my third uh, Bald for Bucks campaign at Roswell Park Cancer Institute in uh, Buffalo, New York, um, where I'll have my head shaved to help raise money for Roswell. Fighting cancer is a particularly personal issue for me, as it is for many Americans, uh, since one out of three of us will be diagnosed with cancer in our lifetime. Uh, When I was 17, I lost my mom, Sylvia, to breast cancer, and my father, Mark Sr., is in remission after battling prostate cancer, so it's obviously a very personal issue to me. Um, I'm also passionate about combating climate change, uh, world poverty, and standing up for animal rights. And I currently live in my hometown of Buffalo with my wife and our one-year-old daughter. So what does that all mean? Why is that important? Well, maybe it's not, but uh, I thought it would be a good opportunity to kind of give you folks a background instead of uh, just coming on the air and getting right into the issue uh, of telling you why I kind of have the views that I do. And when I look at the news, um, maybe what bias I'm looking at it with, I guess, is probably the best way to put it. But um, I try to look at uh, each story as fairly as possible. Uh, I do find, for instance, the next topic that we're going to be getting into, um, which is Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton's plans to rein in Wall Street's greed, I guess you could say, and help to prevent the next uh, recession um, that hit us so hard in 2008. They want to try to um, obviously make sure that that does not happen again. They have different plans, both, um, I think, noble in their cause. But in kind of trying to gather information for this story, I've noticed something I'm sure a lot of you have noticed, that the coverage on Bernie Sanders uh, does not tend to be 
um, equal or very close to equal of the coverage of Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, for instance, um, or even some of the other uh, Republican candidates like Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio. Um, and one of the reasons I get frustrated uh, by that is because I think they both Hillary and Bernie have great ideas um, that could really help the country. And I think they both need to be um, fully presented uh, by our media so that we can make a decision in who we feel, you know, and also with, you know, the Republican candidates, who we feel would be uh, the best person to lead us as, as our president. Um, and the more I see how the Democratic, um, the DNC, the Democratic National Committee led by Debbie Wasserman Schultz um, has kind of handicapped Bernie um, before he can even get his ideas out is very frustrating to me. And I think if her goal is to try to help Hillary Clinton, who I think is a great candidate in and of herself and has some excellent ideas, um, I actually think we have three good candidates, um, or three, probably two great candidates and one good candidate in Martin O'Malley. I think he might be a, a decent cabinet member, but I don't think he's on the level of a Hillary or, or a Bernie in my personal opinion. But in comparing both Hillary and Bernie, I find that this phenomenon of putting the debates on weekends and um, just the media not covering him in general uh, – Debbie Wasserman Schultz is kind of leading that narrative and, and making that happen uh, in a lot of different ways. And instead of trying to, uh, instead of helping Hillary Clinton, I think it's hurting her and it's making it seem as if, you know, she needs that extra help. Whereas I think if both candidates stood side by side, they both would have an excellent chance. And I very well still think Hillary could uh, and probably would beat Bernie Sanders in a primary, even if they both had. Uh, a fair shot, but we won't know unless that happens. So um, one of the stories that caught my attention, which I'll be discussing with uh, John Nichols in the next segment, um, is a great speech that uh, Senator Sanders gave yesterday um, where he vows to fight the fraud of Wall Street and provide relief to uh, bank consumers. Um, if you'd like to check out an article in the break that did a good job covering it, it's by John Wagner of the Washington Post. Um, this was a speech yesterday that Senator Sanders gave. And before we get into the specifics of that, we're going to actually ask uh, John Nichols from The Nation how he thinks um, we got into the 2008 recession because there's some different opinions uh, from both Senator Sanders and Hillary Clinton as to how that happened and why their particular plans go in the direction that they do to prevent that from happening again. So if you'd like to give us a shout and discuss uh, any of the things that I've laid out or something different, uh, you're welcome to do so at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. This is Mark Grimaldi in for Leslie Marshall. And again, when we return from break, we'll be joined by John Nichols of thenation.com. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi, Leslie's executive producer, holding down the fort for Leslie until she uh, returns from her TV appearance. Uh, she'll be back with us at 4 p.m. Eastern. In the meantime, uh, as I previously alluded to, we are joined by, or rejoined, I should say, he's been on the show many times before, the great John Nichols, who is a pioneering political blogger who's written the beat since uh, 1999. 
which doesn't sound like that long ago, John, when I hear it, but then I think, oh, that's 17 years ago. Um, You're writes, making me feel old. Oh, man, I'll tell you. Uh, writes about politics for The Nation magazine as its Washington correspondent, and he's a contributing writer for The Progressive and In These Times and the associate editor for The Capital Times, which is a daily newspaper in Madison, Wisconsin. John, sorry to make you feel old. I was actually just going down uh, – my my checklist of um it was funny I was mentioning next month I'll have been working for Leslie for a decade um and I'm 33 so it's almost a third of my life so it's kind of crazy um you know being in politics and or involved in it from that age and I was you know talking with some friends my age and you know I feel like an old soul compared to them when they got involved in it but um one of the things that really made a, a big impact on me uh, many of us was um obviously in 2008 um when the recession came to uh I guess full bore, as you you might want to call it, mm-hmm. um, really affected our economy probably permanently, or at least it's going to for a very long time. Um, before we get into the plans that Bernie Sanders talked about yesterday, and then you know the response by Hillary Clinton and some of her uh, advisors, how her plan differs. Um, you know, we've heard a lot about credit a credit. I can't even say it. Credit derivative swaps and shadow banking. Um, just to give us a quick refresher, uh, if you can, in in the guise of talking about what Senator Sanders and um, you know Secretary Clinton are trying to do, how we got into that mess and why they feel it's important uh, to mm-hmm. try to prevent it from happening again. Sure. Um, well, I don't know whether you've seen. The movie, the the Big Short. I thought you were maybe going to bring that up, and I, so funny, quick, funny backstory. So I'm a young dad. I have a one year old, and last night I was looking up movie times to see if I could scoot out and see it before my <laughs> interview with you today. And I was like, "There's just no way this is happening." But I I, I definitely want to see it now because I heard it's they do a pretty decent job. Have you seen it yet? I have, and I and in fact I know a few of the players in it, and uh, you know obviously. Uh, I, I think it does a terrific job. Good. I've and, only heard one person talk about how they liked it, and I don't really, I didn't know them that well. So you saying that now, I'm definitely going to see it. <laughs> well, you should. It's a great movie. It's very well done. But the reason I bring it up is it's the answer to your question. Really? Uh, anybody who watches that movie is not going to tell you that there was one simple cause to the financial meltdown of 2008. Um, really 2007 into 2008. What that film shows you is, you know, that it was actually a sort of a slow burn that that blew up uh, in September of 2008. And here's the important part about it. What they show in that film, which I think is accurate, it's based on Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short, uh, and also based on, you know, a lot of the other good research that has been done about all these issues, is that you had a meltdown of ethics, you had a meltdown of regulation, you had a meltdown of oversight, and ultimately you had a, a something that was different than the meltdown, a, a radical change in you know how we think about banking, how we think about financial services. All of this crashed into the same, same moment. And uh, so if we want to assign blame, can we assign some blame to uh, the deregulations that took place in both the Clinton and Bush administrations? Yes, you can. I think it's fair to do, and I think it's appropriate to say that there's there's some blame there. Can you also assign blame to um, appointments? 
to the Federal Reserve, people that were serving uh, in, in not only Federal Reserve, but also in various SEC and other regulatory oversight engagement roles. Yes, I think there were a lot of lousy people appointed and then some good people appointed that weren't listened to. And then there was a total failure by the U.S. Congress, particularly the Senate, to do adequate oversight. Finally, um, I, I think that, that an important thing to understand is that you know so much of this was merged in with the housing market and how we were selling houses, doing credit for houses, doing second, third, fourth mortgages or whatever, uh, all of those issues. So I'm not giving you a simple answer because I don't think there is a simple answer. But what I can tell you is this. We have such an integrated uh, and overlapping financial system in this country now that if we do not slow down speculation and get some controls on that, if we do not reassert some measure of regulation, if we do not hold out the very certain prospect of prosecution when people do wrong, and if we do not provide alternatives in banking and in financial services that are more secure, that are safer, frankly, and more responsible, if we don't take all those steps, we are absolutely 100% guaranteed that we're going to have another meltdown. John, I, I think I think that I was promise. a damn good answer. Actually, you did that in uh, like under three minutes, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> when they put it into what a probably a two hour uh, film. Uh, I don't want to get any further into that because we only have a minute until our next break. Sure. So uh, we're gonna put you, we're gonna put our guests on hold. If you want to join John, obviously you can hear he's you know just an absolute wealth of knowledge and um, he puts things in very understandable terms without making you feel like he, you know he's talking down to you. Which I think a lot of people sometimes get in- intimidated with, especially something like as he said such a complex issue of how we got into this uh, situation, but you must understand it to understand why we have to change it and how we have to change it. I'll leave you with a statistic as we grow into a break that was brought up by Bernie Sanders in part of his speech, which we'll play coming out of the next break. Um, that is pretty concerning. Um, the 2008 bailout of Wall Street by taxpayers uh led to the three of the four largest financial institutions that were bailed out are now nearly 80% larger than they were at the time. So three of the four largest financial institutions now 80% bigger after the bailout. So we're going in the wrong direction. We're going to talk more about that with John, 888-6-LESLIE. resolution that I will keep if elected president, and that is, if Wall Street does not end its greed, we will end it for them. Under my administration, Wall Street CEOs will no longer receive a get-out-of-jail-free card. Not only will big banks not be too big to fail, but big-time bankers will not be too big to jail. 
The truth is that Wall Street, corporate America, the corporate media, and wealthy campaign donors are just too powerful. What this campaign is about is building a political movement which revitalizes American democracy, which brings millions of people together, black and white, Latino, Asian American, Native American, young and old, men and women, gay and straight, native-born and immigrant, people of all religions. So, John, I think Senator Sanders hit the nail on the head. I mean, those were just some clips from his speech yesterday, but he seems to understand what you're talking about, and he wants to take steps to prevent it from happening again. Getting into some of the specifics of his plan, um, you know, he, he talks about wanting to reinstate a modern Glass-Steagall Act, uh, for instance. Now, that's something that Hillary Clinton does not want to do. On that specific point, where do you see you know, differences between the two candidates? Well, there are some differences, although I think that uh, we will see progress from both these campaigns on this issue as, as the race progresses. Um, Clinton has indicated a desire to regulate, and uh, she has been getting advice, in my view, from some very good people. Not all of them, but not all of them. And you know, I want to counsel that there's some folks that are associated with Clinton, and I'm not a particular fan of. But she has taken advice from some folks, in my view, who really do get the crisis. And she's talked a lot about uh, addressing so-called shadow banking. In fact, she was out front on that issue. So uh, it's, I don't want to suggest to you that being in favor of a restoration of Glass-Steagall necessarily makes you perfect, and and questioning whether Glass-Steagall is the answer makes you the greatest sinner. That's not the way to see this. The way to see this is that we have got to reestablish some sort of wall uh, between speculation by the banks and by financial institutions and the traditional banking activities. Now, whether you want to do that via a restoration of Glass-Steagall, whether you want to do it, as Sanders suggests, with a so-called 21st century Glass-Steagall, a new variation that deals with the times in which we live, or whether you want to do it with some of the models that Hillary Clinton talks about as regards addressing shadow banking and some of these other you know, really troublesome uh, activities, uh, I'm okay with what you what you call it. I don't care what name it has, but that wall's got to go back up. And Sanders, in his speech, clearly indicated an understanding of that need. And I would suggest to you that another aspect that not many people will mention, but that I think is very important in that regard, was his referencing of a financial transactions tax, a so-called Robin Hood tax. It's really important to understand that when we talk about a financial transaction tax, we're not just talking about, uh, you know, skimming off some money from, you know, all these bonds and stock trades and you know, all the different financial transactions to get money to, say, pay for college education or health care or something like that. There is a profound benefit that comes from establishing a financial transaction tax as regards regulating speculation. Because if speculation 
has to move at a rate where it can be monitored and minimally taxed. I'm talking about you know, a micro-tax here. That, at least up to this point, appears to slow the process down. And in slowing the process down and giving it some level of oversight, we begin to address the, some of the worst excesses of speculation. So as you look for answers on this, don't simply look for, you know, top-line slogans or top-line phrases. Look also for technical and structural changes that will slow down speculation, prevent the worst sorts of speculation, regulate it, and again, this is something I referenced before, and it's something you did hear uh, Sanders reference in that speech, hold out the guarantee that if you speculate in irresponsible, lawless, fraudulent ways, that you will be prosecuted. Because that also is a form of regulation. Bottom line is, I want to hear from all of these candidates, and and we should give uh, a shout-out here to Martin O'Malley as well, who has put out a a good plan on, on these issues. Um, I want to hear from all these plan, these candidates much more detail than we have heard so far. We're just beginning to get the detail that we need uh, because we haven't talked a lot about this. We should not – this ought, should not be, you know, one day of referencing. Well, I think that's the frustrating part when, you know, looking at the debates, for instance, you know, some of the topics that have been discussed, not that they're not important, but I think many people – Obviously, a majority of Americans, when they're asked, what's the number one issue? The economy. Well, here you go. I mean, this yeah. is defining one of the major ways that our economy will operate. So I, I'm, I've been frustrated that it hasn't been talked about more. But I am hopeful, as you mentioned, that we've been getting more and more details. And obviously, you know, looking to previous elections, the more the further along the campaigns go, the more details we tend to get. So my understanding then, what you're laying out, is that the differences in the plans are are there, but they both have the right idea of what they're going after. Let's go to the other side without, you know, making assumptions. You know, from my understanding, looking at the Republican candidates, um, you know, Trump, I know, has put out some um, some of his financial plans, more of them to do with taxation. But I haven't gotten uh, any understanding that any of the Republican candidates plan to do anything about regulating this industry. They've done nothing but try to make the word you know, regulation a bad word, essentially. And I think they've been effective in many ways whenever the president um, or anyone talks about trying to regulate these industries. They've been very good with their echo chamber of saying, oh, well, regulation hurts the economy, when in fact, not having regulation hurt the economy. And it's been clearly proven that that's happened. So uh, do the American people, uh, is this is this over a lot of the American people's heads, John, without sounding, you know, insensitive or that I'm over all of our heads? Well, that's the thing. Like you said, you have to look at a lot of these issues, but but they're so important, which is what you bring up. So, I mean, what is it going to be the candidate who most effectively explains how their plan will take will basically control this that will have success on it? Is is that more important than the plan itself? Sometimes. Look, it's sort of a gut check. But here's the bottom line. You want a president who, A, understands the basics of the issues and B, has some passion with regard to them. I think that's one of the reasons why Sanders has done so well in this campaign, especially with younger people, because I think a lot of younger people, uh, you know, may not be looking through every detail of the plan, but they're looking at this guy and they're saying, you know, he says he's a democratic socialist. 
that's not a negative in this regard. I mean, somebody who says they're going after the billionaire class and going after the bankers, that sounds pretty good to a lot of people. Well, isn't isn't that one of the reasons, too, that, you know, some people have pointed out that Trump supporters uh, have supported him because they have a lot of anger regarding how the middle class has been eroded, and they think that somehow, you know, he is going to attack this problem because he says he stands up for them, although his solution is really scapegoating, you know, immigrants and Muslims and blaming them for the problem of the economy, whereas, um, you know, like you just said, a lot of young people see that Senator Sanders understands the problem and is willing to go after it in obviously a much more um, targeted manner, but is it some of the same emotion fueling the Trump supporters in that notion? Well, there's passion out there, no doubt about it. But one of the things that I would suggest to you is that um, Trump has actually touched in on some of this better than some of the other Republican candidates, because he'll at least sort of yell and scream a little bit about hedge fund managers and, and you know, some of the speculators. He actually at least acknowledges the pain and the anger that a lot of Americans have been through. Remember, we're actually we're talking about human suffering here. We're not talking just about you know financial ledgers and things of that nature. We're talking about people who've lost homes, who've lost jobs, who've gone through a loss of a substantial portion of their retirement, and you know have to work three, four, five more years than they expected to. This is big deal stuff, and so simply acknowledging that reality is important. And I think that any candidate does that has somewhat of an upper hand. But I would make a real distinction between uh, a Trump backer and a Sanders backer. And I think it's, it's an interesting one that, that most of our media doesn't talk a lot about. I think you could have a Trump backer and a Sanders backer in the same household, but I don't think they're the same person. I think that you might have the parents or the grandparents looking at Trump and the you know, young adult looking at Sanders. Why? Uh, they Why the difference? The same economic class, right? Well, because I think, you know, and I'm not going to paint too broad a sweep here, but I think younger people are tend to be more conscious of the fact that blaming the other, you know, blaming uh, the immigrant, the refugee, the unemployed person, the underemployed person, is not the way that you're going to get out of this mess. You know, that's, that's, that's a terrible, terrible, divisive and dysfunctional way to respond to the crisis that did occur and it might well occur again. What you want is a unified uh, working class, middle class in this country that says to those in power, uh, we're just not going to accept you creating a situation where we've got to bail out the banks if they crash the economy again. And, uh, and I don't think Trump's saying that effectively. I do think Sanders is saying that. I think that O'Malley is saying that. I think Clinton is moving toward expressing some some of that, and that's important because, you know, at the end of the day, this is what people want, and they didn't get it from the Dodd-Frank report. They want an absolute assurance that if the same jokers and, and incompetence that, and fraudsters that crashed the economy in 2008, crash it again, we won't have to lock up our economy to bail them out for the next four or five years after that. We've been through a crash caused by bad players and by lack of regulation and all the other factors we talked about. The critical thing to communicate on this issue going into the 2016 campaign is that won't happen again. 
and we won't do it the same way. Uh, and the reason that I think we need to talk about this a lot more is that there, there's a lot of devil in the detail. There's also a, a you know, sense of, kind of ongoing passion. This isn't just a soundbite. It isn't just a speech. And so would I like to see both the Democrats and the Republicans have a full debate on how to regulate financial services, banking, and the economy? Yes. I think we, that should be, you know, ironclad, nothing but that. And then when you get your nominees, would I like to see at least one of the fall debates solely devoted to these core issues? Yes, I would. And you know what? Anybody in the media or anybody in the political class that tells you that Americans would not be interested or that it would be over their heads, I, I will tell you that person is part of the problem, not the solution, because if you say, you know, we're going to take a night and we're going to have the candidates actually talk about how they're going to make sure you don't go through what you just went through the last six, eight years, uh, I think every American in the country. I think, oh, I, country. I think you'd have the most watched debate so far um, because, like you said, it affects everyone. Um, we're going to stop right there just before we uh, go for one more segment with John. If you'd like to uh, touch on any of these issues with uh, our guest John Nichols or myself, Mark Romaldi, you're welcome to do so at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Uh, we have one more segment, so we'd be able to squeeze in your call. Uh, in the meantime, we are going to head to a quick break. Again, I'm joined by our guest, John Nichols, who is a pioneering political blogger who has written the beat since 1999, and he writes for TheNation.com. You can check him out on Twitter. Uh, his Twitter uh, handle is at Nichols Uprising. That's N-I-C-H-O-L-S Uprising. And also check out at The Nation for The Nation's uh, Twitter handle. We'll be right back after this short break. Leslie Marshall, The Simple Truth in a Complicated World, 888-6-LESLIE. back to the Leslie Marshall Show, talking uh, money, the economy, the 2008 uh, recession, and Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, and the rest of the presidential candidates' approach to prevent uh, that type of crisis from happening again. As I said, we'd uh, take calls for our guest, John Nichols. We go to Rod in New Jersey. Rod, you wanted to talk, uh, you had a question or comment about progressive uh, taxation. Go ahead, you're on with uh, John and myself. Yes, I uh, just wanted to throw a few things on the uh, table. Uh, uh, there's also something, uh, you know, basically sort of like a cycles thing. Uh, Ravi Batra talked a little bit about this. But um, also uh, about every 60 years ago, we seem to go through a, you know, some sort of an economic calamity. And uh, I think what it is is that um, now in my case, you know, I'm in my 60s, and my parents and grandparents went through the Great Depression. So they knew what that was all about, and they backed the uh, reforms. Uh, we've kind of, as they die off, uh, we lose that uh, collective memory and then uh, uh, proceed to make the same mistakes that got us into that mess in the first place. Um, also, I wanted to bring up the Lorentz curve and uh, 
progressive taxation. Um, I believe I happen to believe in uh, progressive taxation because uh, it's based on ability to pay. And while it does penalize the uh, wealthy class a little bit, uh, generally they do all right under it, and uh, the rest of us uh, are basically rewarded for our efforts. And um, the Lorenz curve, uh, there was a gentleman named Max Lorenz back in 19, he invented this back in 1905, where um, basically what he did was take, you know, uh, plot the uh, how much an individual represented of the population of a country versus how much uh, income or wealth he had. And our Lorenz curve has been uh, declining uh, steadily since uh, about 1968. John, I think uh, Rod brings up a few good points. Um, I know I had kind of off the air had emailed you a story about um, – our middle class uh, from the L.A. Times about a month ago, the Pew Research Center uh, released a report um, showing that the middle class has, is no longer the majority of America. And it's interesting. He mentioned 68. This this starts in 71. So addressing his points in whatever order you'd like, I do find it interesting. He brought up, you know, how we're losing people who have uh, memory of the, the Great Recession. You know, I have a great grandmother who... who live that uh, through that with my grandmother and you know they were very big on obviously the new deal under FDR um, are we losing that collective memory we sure are and the caller is exactly right this is a huge part of the challenge that we face folks who came through the Great Depression understood from firsthand experience they didn't have to have you know economics degrees from Wharton or you know be a commentator on CNBC they knew from their real life experience what happened when banks were irresponsible when speculation began to dominate economic life rather than actual production and they knew the the play out of that so they became very very strong supporters of a regulated economy. And I understand that word regulated, i.e. That, that, you know, you put some brakes on things. You don't allow some behaviors. You don't just say, well, anybody who's making money can make it any way they want to make it. No, you, you have a set of rules. And associated with that is a set of goals. One of the goals of a, of a well-organized economy is to make sure that prosperity is broadly shared so that it People who work hard, put in 40 hours a week, can be not just above the poverty line, narrowly above the poverty line, but can live a middle-class life in which they save for themselves, they put money back into the economy, they help their kids to get ahead. I mean, that's a functional economy, and that ought to be a goal. John, we have to stop here, unfortunately. I I do want to let you know, um, our folks here listening, if you want to check out more of John's work, you can do so on Twitter, at Nichols Uprising. John, thank you so much for joining us. It was really an absolute pleasure. Total pleasure to be with you, and a great call there. Absolutely. Thank you, Rod, and thank you to everyone listening. Leslie will be right back after this short commercial break. This is Mark Romaldi in for Leslie Marshall, and that was the great John Nichols of thenation.com.